Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Well, hello everyone and welcome once again to the MRI cast. This is Bill Faulkner and I'm so glad that you decided to join us. Today with me is the ever popular Dr. Howard Raleigh. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Bill. We're frozen over in Madison, Wisconsin, but that's well, that's only about 10, 11 months a year. <laughs> right, I know. You've got 11 months of winter and one month of bad ice skating. That's right. right. <laughs> right well, today, today is something, we got something very special for you today. Joining Howard and I today is Dr. David Interline from Duke, and this will be the Dave Interline Show. Well, well thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Dave, welcome. Um, Dave, just to kind of get started, uh, I know we know you, uh, sadly, but we know you, but uh, other people might not. Tell, tell us a little bit about your yourself, your background, before we get started. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, first off, thank you so much for asking me to join you today. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm a neuroradiologist at Duke in North Carolina. And uh, my background really uh, uh, started off in engineering and have had a long, uh, long experience with uh, one of the very first MRI scanners uh, that was made by General Electric. Uh, and since then, I've been very active in MRI. Uh, I do a lot of clinical neuro, uh, neuroradiology, but have also been uh, fairly active on the research side of things. Uh, and it's great to be here with you. Well, thanks. It's great having you. And um, as everybody knows, I'm certainly not a neuroradiologist, but Dr. Howard Raleigh is. So <laughs> we ought to be having we ought to be having some good discussions here. At least I'll let these two guys. Dave, do you still have that original GE? You know, I came here to Madison 22 <laughs> years ago, and finally last year we uh, we upgraded the HDX system that we'd had every day for 22 years. It was a sweet <laughs> the, magnet. <laughs> yeah, those. You know, see, that's the thing about. It. I don't think a lot of people can appreciate some of the best fat sat and things like that that you you know you had were on those magnets, the long bore, you know, smaller bore magnets. Uh, once you got to where you're trying to make them comfortable for every, everybody with the big bore and the short bore, you know, RF power deposition goes up, uh, fat sack goes to crap and, but Hey, it sells well, you know, <laughs> I mean, you got a, you got a comfortable magnet. It's very, uh, important for peds, which I think we're talking about peds today, aren't we, Bill? We are actually, that's what we're going to talk about. For those of you who were curious, uh, we're going to talk about gadolinium based contrast agent use in pediatric neuroimaging. And we're going to focus on, uh, dosing concerns or dosing strategies, I guess, if you will, uh, as well as, uh, protocol. So let me just kind of throw a topic out there to get, uh, started on this in general use of gadolinium-based contrast agents in pediatric neuroimaging, what are some just overall top-level considerations? And, and Dave, we'll start with you, and then 
get Howard's opinion on it. Well, I think, I mean, there are a number of them uh, specifically, and we're talking about contrast here. Um, you know, first off, is contrast indicated in for the particular uh, uh, clinical study that you're doing? Um, and if so, how does that work into your sedation uh, protocol? Because uh, kids are squirmers and it's very difficult to get good quality images uh, unless you have some sort of a very active sedation and uh, anesthesia uh, uh, support group. Uh, and then kind of moving to the next area, uh, you know, getting IVs in place and how do you administer contrast? Uh, what do you do for the little small doses that they have for children? Uh, and, you know, how do you get them through the study? Do you scan check? Uh, there are a lot of considerations for peds. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think even more than adults, we tend to have more combined brain and spine protocols for a lot of the disorders we look at. And, um, you know, we also use a lot of split dose protocols where, for instance, we may be doing a brain that's kind of long and then we have to look at drop mets in the spine. Do you redose them or not? Or if you're doing a, a, a cardiac uh, dynamic scan, but you want to get perfusion in the brain later. How do you get both the T1 and T2 star dynamic type exams, uh, keeping in mind how you're going to meter out that contrast so it's effective for both? There are a lot of complexities for sure. You know, one of the things when I actually had a real job, uh, the, one of my last real jobs, was working for um, managing the MRI uh, at uh, the big hospital here in Chattanooga, uh, which was connected to the children's hospital. And we had, uh, for the most part, we had pediatric stuff scheduled, uh, certainly coming from the hospital uh, one day a week, even on outpatients. They tried to tried to get it one day a week because we had anesthesia support come down uh, on that particular day. Now, that didn't mean we couldn't do an anesthesia case in between times uh, as needed, but the uh, so so let me get each of your uh, facilities, uh, I guess, protocol on this. So uh, again, this was some time ago, but I think it's still pretty much the same way now today. Uh, this anesthesia group uh, really liked to have the child uh, under general anesthesia, and that, and I'm not an anesthesiologist, but this was the this was the head of the group's point on this. And I, you know, it sounded pretty reasonable to me. The reason they like to go with, uh, you know, general anesthesia and they get a tube down them is because they feel like they had really good control over them. And um, they could also then, you know, we could say, I'm going to need 45 minutes on this. And then I'm going to need, uh, okay, I'm about 10 minutes till I'm done. And then they could start you know, waking the kid up and stuff like that. They, interestingly enough, I mean, as an aside, they also use this as a teaching opportunity for their nurse anesthetist students because it was a real unique environment. And these people were really good to work with because they really did let us tell them about the MR safety side of things, and they just took care of the anesthesia. So anyway, my point is the their guidelines were up to a certain age, and I'm, I'm Forget the age, but, you know, up to a certain age, uh, they're going to be under general anesthesia. After that, and I want to say it was like 10 or 11 years old, something like that. I don't know where they came up with it. It'd be general anesthesia. 
if they were older than that, they had to try it cold turkey. If they couldn't do it cold turkey, then they would go to general anesthesia. So that was kind of their thing at that time. Um, Dave and Howard, I mean, how's it kind of handled uh, at your facilities? Yeah, I'll I'll start if that's okay, Howard. And and sure. um, we have a couple dedicated magnets uh, where we do an awful lot of uh, pediatrics, and um, uh, we have a, a support group of uh, three or four actually uh, pediatricians that we've hired, uh, and they provide a lot of our anesthesia care and then um, uh, our sedation care. And then the ones that are uh, kind of higher level that we need um, more control over, that's where we have the anesthesia offsite teams. And uh, we don't intubate that much in these young kids. We do use a fair amount of uh, LMA, laryngeal mask airways, uh, to mm-hmm. uh, make sure that they get adequate aeration. And we we have a sort of a... Well, I guess a multifaceted approach. We first of all it starts for us at the protocol stage when somebody requests something. We look at what kind of exam we need to do. Can we get away with something, you know, very fast with a feed and swaddle in a little kid, or is this going to be a more complicated, detailed exam that's going to take maybe forty minutes? So that's the first thing. You know, are they going to get an IV or need an IV anyway, et cetera? Then we we uh, try to learn about the child, you know, and some four or five year olds can soldier right through something, believe it or not, you know, for a half hour, whereas a lot of 15 year olds can't. So it's not just the age <laughs> and arbitrary cutoffs don't really work. But, um, you I know, I can tell you that from experience. That was absolutely true. <laughs> that's right. And then, you know, we have sort of a spectrum of, uh, help and helpers. So we have the child life specialists who can really help engage kids with tablets and so forth sometimes. And maybe just that kind of distraction is all you need. And then like Dave, we also have pediatric uh, specialists who do our conscious sedation, uh, sort of lighter stuff. And then we have fantastic pediatric anesthesiologists at final step. But, you know, if you can, you sort of want to avoid the anesthesia uh, because, you know, you don't know exactly what uh, deleterious effects it might have down the line. There's some papers that suggest may not be so good for you. Also, when, at least in our practice, if somebody's intubated and or, or sedated, if they're non-communicative, we have to run them in first-level controlled mode rather than normal mode. And that, that we use a 3T, and that really uh, makes the exam actually longer, paradoxically, just when you want it to be faster. So all of these things kind of go into the mix. And um, one of my partners, Justin Brucker, has kind of an algorithm for predicting uh, the best kind of combination of things based on all of the above, all these different facets. Well, would you guys not agree then that, uh, you know, and I'm looking at this from folks that may be listening that, you know, don't do a lot of pediatrics and stuff. It's like when you when you got an exam coming up on a pediatric patient, it's extreme. I would think it would be extremely important to uh, plan out your protocol, to plan out 
what it is you need to do as opposed to just going, okay, let's scan everything we got on them. We don't know we're looking for a search and destroy here. You know, it's you've got time constraints that you want to think of, not only from anesthesia, but from station or the feed and swaddle thing, you know, all those things about how you're going to get it done. So it, to me, it really makes sense to have a, here's our protocol. Here's what I want to get done. And, you know, start with your very most important sequence, then your second most important sequence and your third, you know, and so on. So that you, you know, get a diagnosis in as least a, uh, you know, least problematic approach with the kids. I mean, your thoughts on that? The, Bill, the, the problem with that is that when you're using contrast, contrast is frequently your most important sequence. So right. it's the, the challenge is most important is always at the end. And if you load up your time with a bunch of other, other filler sequences, then, you know, it becomes much more likely that you're going to have motion and, uh, you know, a compromised overall study. And as Howard says, you know, particularly if you're doing spine and brain as well, you're frequently having to switch back and forth uh, to get, you know, enhanced, unenhanced, and then enhanced again. Uh, and th it's really difficult to do. You know, one thing we found is um, this whole process benefits from building a toolbox that includes uh, several fast focused protocols that can be done in five to 10 minutes, total exam time. And just as you were saying, you know, in some of those, like our stroke protocol, which we do use in kids, uh, we order up first uh, one quick localizer, and then uh, we inject gadolinium to get perfusion, and then we get diffusion. We send that to our software to get perfusion, diffusion, mismatch maps, and then we do all everything else post-GAD. You know, the T2s, the T2 stars, uh, T2 flare, the MRA, MRV, so that way you actually are done with the most important stuff in the first uh, one to two minutes, uh, including the gadolinium injection. And then you, you do get your post-GAD series later. Well, that's, that's kind of an interesting, interesting point. I guess it really goes to, you know, I mean, really, I guess is the same as what I was saying, but I just didn't do it as elegantly as you guys do. It's just that you don't want to waste a lot of time with sequences that are you know, you feel like you have to do, but they don't provide you any information. And, and Howard, you brought up an interesting point there. So we'll move on into contrast as we're moving into contrast uh, topics here. Uh, the most, and Dave, you said the most important stuff is the contrast stuff. And, and Howard, you said you really just don't do a lot of stuff pre-contrast. I mean, you don't need, but maybe, uh, you know, one or two, something pre-contrast, uh, you know, and if you can do, if you've got the ability to do it because, you know, the anesthesia or the control is there, uh, you know, if you did a 3D T1 sequence before you started all the contrast stuff, you pretty much got everything you need, right? In the brain anyway. Yeah, at least you have the ability to see, you know, blood, methemoglobin and so forth, or a tumor that might have some T1 bright material in it, like melanoma. You want to know what's enhancing because that's why you're giving the gadolinium. Yeah. Although just keeping in mind, there's both the T2 star dynamic effect for uh, susceptibility-based perfusion, and then there's the T1-based uh, things. And they're both important depending on the application. 
so Dave, moving on into the the gadolinium-based contrast agent uh, topic, there's a couple of papers actually that you you are uh, part of, um, and you know we can reference those. And for those of you online listening, we can make these available for you in the resource section of the uh, of the podcast episode on the mricast.com uh, website. Uh, and so let's talk about the the gadolinium contrast agent selection. So there's a, there's a couple of things. There's you know the big thing today: linear versus macrocyclic. And then there's also considerations as it comes to effectiveness of the agent for a given dose, relaxivity. So, so Dave, what are your thought processes on those? Uh, characteristics of an agent in selecting and use selection and use of a gadolinium based contrast agent. Well, it's, it's not a simple thing and we could probably discuss this for, for many hours back and forth. Um, you know, relaxivity is the ability of a contrast agent to enhance so that if you have a higher relaxivity, you get more enhancement for the same amount of contrast. Uh, and, um, certain agents, uh, like, uh, gadobenate, uh, which is multi-hance, have a higher relaxivity. Uh, and one of the new uh, uh, agents that is uh, not quite available yet, uh, gadopiclinol, um, is uh, another one that will be probably coming. Um, and so for the same amount of gadolinium, you get much better enhancement. Uh, and that has really... Um, been useful in our clinical practice uh, for patients. And then on the other side, um, and you have uh, agents which which are macrocyclic, have a little bit, have a uh, tighter uh, gadolinium bond uh, holding the gadolinium in place so you cannot have dissociation. And, uh, you know, there, there are those, particularly in the pediatric arena, who are very strongly... Um, enthralled with, um, with macrocyclic agents. Uh, and at this point, uh, all of those have about the same, uh, uh, overall enhancement strength, which is to say relaxivity. Um, so the, the paper, the, the two papers that I was involved in one is, um, you know, talking about particularly, uh, the use of contrast in, under age two, which has always been a gap in our uh, in our contrasting uh, regimens, um, one deals with multi-hands and one deals with um, uh, pro-hands. So, with the with the higher relaxivity of of multi-hands that you get with gadolinium or multi-hands, not only do you get a stronger effect for uh, say a standard dose that you would give somebody. But it also gives you the flexibility to use a lower dose, in other words, give less gadolinium in those cases where you, uh, you know, where you could where you could do that. Because I think studies have shown, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, but studies have shown that if you do a half dose, for example, with gadolinium multi-hands, then that is equivalent to a full dose of any of the other uh, standard agents, be them be they linear or macrocyclic, correct? Yeah, and I think Howard wrote one of those or a couple of those. Um, 
but well, he pro he probably did, but you know, I mean, he just you know, you got to get him. He goes to sleep every so often on these what? things. So what? we probably did you guys refer my to name? him. <laughs> See, there you go. You woke him up. Well, you mentioned relaxivity, and I thought you meant relaxation, so I just kind of yeah, dozed no, off. Yeah, you just kind of dozed yeah. off, yeah. Well, yeah, and the the thing about those papers, when they're done properly, uh, they have to be blinded, and you have to give the, the volunteer patient, you know, one agent one day and the other agent the other day, and then have them read by people who don't know which contrast agent was used. And that's important to realize because if, if you just look at your images, you're going to see contrast enhancing stuff every day, no matter what agent you use. It's that you don't realize what you're missing until you compare a regular relaxivity agent to a high relaxivity agent like Enobenate. So having been involved directly in one of those papers, I'm a firm believer based on the scientific evidence that this relaxivity measurement you get in test tubes actually translates into greater conspicuity of lesions uh, in real patients, and that can make a, a real difference uh, in some cases. Well, so we go back, Dave, to your paper that you were involved with, uh, with uh, multi-hands, scatobinate, with the higher relaxivity. Uh, you had, uh, in that paper, uh, discussed uh, dosing flexibility, uh, correct? I mean, how you could tailor the dose, uh, really depending, I guess, on, on what you were trying to uh, visualize. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. It was not initially designed that way. This, this paper really was um, using data that was submitted to the FDA uh, for the indication of uh, use of contrast in underage two patients. Um, but there were, there were two, um, two centers where, where the data was collected and they had some variable dosing that they utilized. Uh, one was at UCSF uh, Benioff in, um, and, and Oakland and the other was University of Michigan at uh, CS Mott. Um, and um, uh, they utilized um, different contrast dosing administrations. And so we divided the, the lower dosing uh, regimens and then the higher dosing regimens and really found the efficacy uh, to be roughly equivalent between the half dose and the full dose, uh, you know, based on the, um, the, the 90 or so cases that we were able to evaluate. Let me ask this, and I know Howard, you've, I've heard you say on several other episodes uh, something to this effect. You know, for the last I don't know five six years, I lost I lost track. Two thousand two thousand year two thousand like took a chunk out of my time mind here. I can't remember what, but um, at any rate, the. Um, Jeez, oh, man, I totally lost my train of thought. Well, let me see. Let me get back here in a second. Um, I don't know, Howard. I was going to ask you something here, but I forgot. Well, I have I friends who can you. see you and try to help you, Bill. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you should get a scan. <laughs> we have a competing <laughs> clinic for that too, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may need it. I think I may need it. Um, but as it relates to, uh, well, now now I remember what it was. As it relates to retained gadolinium, which, um, quite honestly, 
I don't know. The more I look at this issue, the concern about retained gadolinium and, and so on, it, it seems to me like this is my take on it. And then let me see what you guys think. Um, this is not something new. We've been given gadolinium since the late 80s, early 90s. So we've been retaining gadolinium ever since then. I mean, this didn't just something that started. And it's been known way before NSF that certain agents were not as stable, uh, was seen in a lot of studies where you get uh, increased zinc excretion in the urine if you were given a linear non-ionic agent, um, uh, like OmniScan, say, versus uh, macrocyclic, like Prohance, there's particular cases on those. Uh, even OmniScan to this day has a, on their labeling says, don't check my calcium if you've given uh, OmniScan, you know, don't use colometric calcium testing if you give an OmniScan because it transmetallates and interacts with the zinc and the regent and stuff like that. So we've known this for years, and this was pre-NSF. And then so NSF comes up, and we're like, oh, you know, oh, crap. And then it very soon, you know, quickly turns into, well, not every agent's got the same risk of NSF. And so with the exception of OmniScan, all of the group one agents, OmniScan is the only group one agent still on the market. Once that is gone, which I assume it, it probably will be, then, uh, you know, then it's all group, you know, essentially group two agents um, being used. So NSF is, you know, was the only thing we've really seen. And it's pretty much, you know, we, we know how to not do it, how to not get it pretty much. Uh, very, very, very low risk. And so this whole issue of gadolinium retention, you know, yeah, we were surprised it was in the brain, but it turns out it's very little amount. And with macrocyclic agents, it appears to clear over time a little bit, at least in animal studies. So would you agree that this, or what's your thought on the whole thing about gadolinium retention? It's, it's almost like nothing really to see here, you know, it just nothing's, you know, nothing's come of it. You know, um, these are important things to be aware of for sure, uh, but to not be afraid of. First, I just want to clarify for sure that um, gadolinium retention is a property of all gadolinium agents. Every single one leaves a little bit of Absolutely. gadolinium behind, whether it's macrocyclic or linear. Um, it, and the other important point is that has nothing to do with NSF, which is a, a disorder seen in people typically with chronic uh, severe renal insufficiency uh, and most prevalent when they're getting some of the older linear agents like Optimark and Omniscan and and um, what was our very first one, GAD-DTPA. Magnavist. Magnavist, thank you. So when we, you know, uh, there was some hubbub in Europe and they banned the linear agents uh, for the most part several years ago over this concern that you could actually see T1 shortening in the brain after repeated doses of some of the agents, uh, linears more than macrocyclics as a general principle. Uh, so they just banned them, including multi-hands except for liver use. Uh, I personally think that's a mistake um, because it's the highest relaxivity agent. It's the one on the balance we still use in adults and peds at our place because we're giving the gadolinium to see lesions and it's the highest relaxivity agent we can buy right now. So, um, you know, a lot of work has happened after that uh, commotion. 
and people have sort of even renamed uh, the gadolinium uh, process that's been reported by patients. So they call it SAGE now, symptoms associated with gadolinium exposure, because mm-hmm. it's recognized it's not a disease um, and <laughs> it's asymptomatic. And so, you know, if you're facing uh, treatment decisions and treatment planning, uh, that's much more important than, you know, potentially having some visible T1 shortening in your dentate nucleus in your cerebellum. Well- well, is it is it correct? I've heard people say this, that if you could ask any neuroradiologist that's been reading for any number of years, and that would include you guys, no, no disrespect intended, but I know we're all about the same age. But, um, you know, is you, you could ask any experienced neuroradiologist and going back 15 years or so, you saw increased T1 signal on pre-contrast images. Patients had no symptoms. You had no idea what to do, to do with it, correct? I mean, it, We explained it away. We said it was due to radiation or myelin vacuolization and things like that. And we used to confidently point it out to our trainees and move on. But it wasn't until a a Japanese resident uh, actually pointed out that, hey, wait, all those papers, they didn't control for gadolinium. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, but in a way, it's reassuring. There have been hundreds of millions of doses given, and there's never been a link to neurologic uh, problems based on gadolinium exposure, to my knowledge. What what are we at, like 500 million dosing uh, of gadolinium? Uh, I mean, it's really amazing how, how many different exposures people have had and there really hasn't been any, uh, you know, clinical uh, clinical sequela uh, of this as a medication. Um, it's it's one of those things. I, I think initially everyone was was very concerned, particularly in the pediatric population, uh, to note that you know any medication would would hang around. But you know, gadolinium really is a calcium analog. And it's going mm-hmm. to, um, you know, be taken up in a lot of these in the same way that calcium is, and uh, particularly in exposure uh, in the globus pallidus and and dentate nucleus uh, regions of the brain. But it's also not very uh, compared to the exposures elsewhere in the body. Uh, there's much less deposition in the brain. Uh, by several magnitudes uh, compared to other areas. There's several studies out there that show the least area of retention in, is in the brain. So uh, given that, let's just kind of say that, okay, so yeah, there are some people that because, you know, they look at this and they go, okay, but for pediatrics, I really want to stay with the macrocyclic. But then again, depending on the relaxivity of the agent, that may or may not be necessarily giving you the best uh bang for the buck, right, so to speak, that you really have to take into account consideration. And I would think you would have to take into account uh, if you're exposing the patient to gadolinium, you want to get some results from that, correct? I mean, if you're you know, exposing them to it, and, I'm, and when I say exposing them to it, the risk is not so much for the, for the uh, gadolinium retention, but rather for the very small risk of an adverse event. So in other words, if you're going to give somebody a drug, there's always the side effects possible and gadolinium is very low, but you really want to make sure you get the effect that you want for that patient. Would you agree? 
Bill, I would I would add one more thing. There's there's an additional risk, and the risk is that by giving um, uh, a altered dose or a an agent that doesn't allow you to see things to their best to the best is you may miss the the finding. Uh, which is why you're doing the study in the first place. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the move toward very low low dose CT, which is great. You know, you want to reduce radiation, but at a certain point, you fall off the cliff because you you don't have sufficient image quality. So, one of the risks in this whole discussion, which Dave is so aptly pointing out, is that you won't make the diagnosis because you either used too little or you didn't use a high relaxivity agent for a particular application. And the other side of the coin is just by using a macrocyclic in kids or anyone else doesn't mean you're not uh, retaining GAD. In fact, Bob McDonald at Mayo did a bunch of experiments. And one I remember, he, he looked at people who had gadolinium injections, then he looked at their spinal fluid over uh, the next month, and there were about 60 patients. And he was using Gadavist, which is a, a slightly higher relaxivity uh, macrocyclic. So you think, okay, that's not going to show up. It showed up in all 60 patients out to a month. <laughs> it was still circulating <laughs> around. So you're not avoiding the gadolinium exposure. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to balance all of this, all these different risks and benefits. And I think it's important then for, you know, everybody to look at this in perspective, to to the point of, you know, it depends on, you know, what article you read at what point in time, but clearly way greater than 400 million doses worldwide since we started doing this. Uh, that, that's a extremely impressive track record. And and to the point, the, the NSF thing, not to minimize it, but it was kind of a red, to Howard's point, it's kind of a red herring. It, it it had to do with instability, but not so much retention. And so the more stable the agents are, and currently, according to the ACR, if you're using a group two agent, which includes all of the macrocyclics, as well as multihance, the only linear agent in group two, which has very little, if any, I don't know that there are any confirmed cases of, of NSF with multi-hands, even in patients with poor renal function. So this whole thing about linear is linear bad, macrocyclic good is a little over oversimplified, right? I mean, it's, it's it, you have to look at the track record from all of the agents. I think most people know what you're talking about, but I'm just going to insert uh, briefly that uh, the gadolinium agents have been divided into levels of sort of risk category, if you will, by the FDA and by European agencies and uh, picked up by the ACR. So group one are some of the oldest uh, traditional agents like Magnavist, Omniscan, Optimark. And uh, those are group one. That means that they are uh, relatively high risk uh, for causing NSF. When I say relatively, it means even in the worst case scenario, with the worst agent, if you give them gadolinium with uh, renal failure, you're going to get NSF about 4% of the time. Now, group two, empirically, millions of doses, they're essentially not associated with NSF uh, to the point where in the most recent contrast manual from the ACR, they say if you're using a group two agent, so again, that's all the macrocyclics. So we've got Prohance, Gadavist, um, help me out here, Doterum. And also the uh, linear agent. Clarascan. 
ClaraScan now, uh, and the, the linear agent uh, multi-hands, all of those are so rarely associated or maybe not at all with NSF. You don't even have to check creatinines or EGFRs anymore, according to the ACR. The FDA says you do, but you know that's another point. And then group three <laughs> is just, uh, just the liver agents that we didn't have enough data on to know, but they, they look like they're probably safe. So group one, dangerous for NSF, and group two, safe, and group three, not really sure, but probably safe. And and every one of them will leave some amount of gadolinium behind. That's <laughs> you right. Know, some, it doesn't matter which one. Okay, various amounts, but nonetheless, and actually all small amounts, especially in the brain. So, so what I'd like to look at next, and, and Dave, I'd like to get you to help us out here. So let's talk about the little small kids. Let's talk about the the, the smaller age group and challenges with di- uh, dynamic imaging uh, or dynamic injection type studies. I mean, we, we you addressed this and said something to it up front about, you know, consideration of the vessel size, the IV size and all that kind of stuff. Then there's also, uh, you know, if you're doing MR angiography type stuff, uh, you know, you've got to get enough volume in there so you can actually, you know, do do the study because you've got a certain time time of acquisition. And also that's, so this is, yeah, it's kind of multifaceted here because it depends on your injection technique as well. So I guess what I like to look at is things dealing with challenges of doing dynamic type injection studies uh, relative to the dose you're going to use, the volume, do you have to, and I use the word dilute, but I do want us to kind of explain that to people so they make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we say the word dilute, um, you know, along with vessel size and IV size. So that's kind of a little small thing to throw out there to ask you to speak to, but... (laughs) Let's start with that. <laughs> uh, you have 10 seconds. Go. Yeah, um, you go. <laughs> the, um, so first off, you know, MRA for the uh, uh, MRA for kids is is uh, still largely uh, off label for most of the agents. And um, the problem is, as you get smaller and smaller and less weight, you know, all of a sudden the volume that you have to administer the the children really is uh, is is scant. You know, um, my one of my one of my main technologists, Lisa Wall, was was telling me about uh, an eight pound uh, child that you know we we could give uh, 0.6 cc's of contrast to evaluate their AVM, and they wanted three twists. Um, you know, how do you do that? There's just no way to you know, to get there. Um, so the, the best way to do it is to dilute the contrast, which is off label. Um, you know, you can go one to one, uh, and, um, typically, you know, this would be like a hand push that you're, you know, going to, you can either go, you know, one of contrast to every, you know, two of, uh, saline, um, and then you're going to be injecting over a longer period and can taper your imaging uh, much easier than you do for, um, you know, these little small boluses that you're trying to get in place. Uh, and 
typically use a, a turkey foot, which is that multi-port connector so that you can then go directly to a, um, to a, uh, a saline chaser uh, afterwards and give a bolus uh, to follow. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're moving to do that, you know, the first question is, what kind of IV do you have? Uh, and what our general rule of thumb is, uh, is that, you know, we're, we're looking for, if we're going to power inject, it's going to be through a 22 gauge, uh, uh, you know, IV that's not in the hand a little further up. And, um, uh, you know, you can, you can go up to, uh, two CCs, but typically, you know, I think Jeff Mackey and, and his group at Denver really, um, you know, brought forth the, the idea of going to a little bit slower injections. And we found this to be very useful, uh, you know, to being in, you know, one to one and a half CCs, uh, uh, per second. And, uh, uh, being able to to take this diluted uh, contrast agent, which makes it a whole lot easier to inject as well, because you have much lower viscosity uh, as you dilute it, um, and it's better tolerated, um, and uh, you get really good image quality. You know, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and I was thinking, trying to come up with the a different word to use here, but for for the folks online, when you when you think about or listening, when you think about the word dilute, it almost sounds like, you know, you dilute it so it's not as effective. It's it's like, you know, you, uh, you, you know, you, you take a shot of whiskey and you put water into it so you dilute it. Uh, you know, I mean, Howard, you, you know, you taught me that, right? So, <laughs> um, so the thing of it is, is that you're really not reducing the effect of the gadolinium. You're, all you're doing is really expanding the volume. Would that be a Maybe a, not a bad way to look at it. Yeah, because you, you're still given the same amount of gadolinium. It's just that, in, in instead of being a, a tighter bolus, it's um, you know the the bolus kind of is a little less concentrated and uh, overextends extends over a longer longer period of time, so you can image it better. And you well, know, and that's the. Th- I'm sorry. I was going to say that's the thing that that Jeff Mackey taught me is that if you if you look at the time of your acquisition, if your contrast media injection is way short of your total time of acquisition, you're not really going to get very good images out of that. That's right. And it, it sort of depends on, you know, really the way I step back and look at this, we're talking about dynamic injections. And it depends on what you're capturing that dynamic bolus with. If you're using a, a twist or a tricks or a treat, you know, where you've got time-resolved imaging, it's probably slightly less important, although it's still really important, than, say, if you're doing an elliptic-centric arch or something like that, because you should have enough phases. You'll capture that wash-in and wash-out with those time-resolved uh, type techniques. But, you know, when you look at it, you still want to hit the center case space with a lot of gadolinium, you know, in your particular sequence. And the same argument goes on the T2 star side where you're looking at dynamic susceptibility contrast. You uh, you want a very predictable bolus arrival time and your, your sequence has to capture the wash in and wash out so you get the full first pass. 
So what we do is a little bit different, uh, similar in some ways, but we calculate their full weight adjusted dose, 0.1 millimole per kilo, and we dilute that in enough saline to make a final volume of three mLs, so three cc's, no matter what it started with. And we're talking about little kids here. So yeah, right. That's yeah. Then we inject. Uh, if it, if we're going to do two injections, we'll take that calculated dose and put it in two syringes with three mLs each. Then we strongly prefer using the power injector so that we can control things. And you have to look at the volume and so forth. Our injector tubing is 8 mLs. We flush with 10 mLs. So there's 3 mLs of contrast with saline. That means the baby's going to get 13 mLs of fluid, which may not sound like more than 2.5 teaspoons, but for kids with congenital heart disease, that could be yeah. put them over the edge. But that way we have the same volume and injection parameters, which are 2 mL per second for perfusion and 1 mL per second for the tricks or twist. And um, then you know you're always matching your injection parameters to what you're capturing with, whether it's an MRA or whether it's a dynamic uh, susceptibility sequence for perfusion. You know, the, the thing about rate, um, and I guess maybe it's because I've listened, listened to Jeff Mackey for too long, but, you know, I'm you began to be more of a, and then this is not small kids. I'm just talking about, you know, regular size kids, I guess, or adults is, is looking at more like a, I've become more of a one and a half ML person, you know, per second person uh, for the, for everything other than perfusion, anything other than, you know, when you need to get a really tight bolus for perfusion. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to look at, the length of your injection versus your scan time. And one of the things that if you use the time resolve techniques, twists, tricks, whatever, you know, the column, um, you know, you don't need, you don't need a lot of contrast. The reason back a long time ago, we used to use 40 mLs of GAD when we did an MRA is because our scan time was close to 40 seconds uh, with a scan time of, uh, you know, practical scan time or, or uh, temporal resolution of like every five seconds, you really don't need a whole lot of gadolinium for that, right? And that goes back to what the ACR tells us, although it's a little bit of a difficult concept sometimes, but they say just use what you need, use the only what you need. And for f most of our imaging, we're, you know, looking at enhancing tumors and stuff. I think you want to give 0.1 millimole per kilo. You want to give a full sure. dose for that. But for dynamics, it's it's off-label anyway, but it's also empirically derived. How much do you need? So if I take my adult stroke protocol where I have a perfusion followed by a trix in some cases, our default is to use uh, 0.07 or 70% of the dose for the perfusion because you really need enough gadolinium to give you that signal drop. And then we just save uh, uh, thirty percent of the dose, or you know, in some cases, uh, six cc's for an adult for giving twenty total, and that's plenty for the T one weighted MRA application. And we scale that down for kids too, so we give seventy thirty percent of the uh, the calculated dose uh, for for those split dose protocols. And you can only do that if you've got a really good T one relaxivity agent like multi-hands, because otherwise your MRA is not going to be uh, looking so great if you're only yeah. giving a three-tenths dose. 
Yeah, there, there's no doubt that, you know, the the higher relaxivity really helps you with MRA in particular. Um, but it's, um, you know, the, the question is, uh, you know, how fast do you inject when you are, you know, working with a kid that all of a sudden is uh, in single digit pounds or, you know, within, you know, less than 20 pounds. Uh, and sometimes the veins are not sufficient to really power inject and get a large bore IV in place, large bore being defined as, you know, 22. Uh, and so you're really hanging on literally by a thread and you can do it very effectively uh, with the hand injection, as long as you're, you know, very consistent with the pressure that you're putting on the, on the, uh, on the vessel and the injection. And the other thing is you don't, even with an AVM, Sometimes you don't need to have a, a dynamic. It may not be critical because, for instance, if you run a 3D time of flight, you've got the arterial side. And then we we run a post-contrast 3D phase contrast with a velocity encoding of 40 or 50. That gives you all the arteries and veins and it's 3D. So you can really sort out the nidus and, and look at the venous drainage patterns. And that makes it a bit less critical to capture the tricks. We still love doing that, but you, you've got a good bailout at the static side of, you know, having given contrast, that blood's going to be a shorter T1 for half an hour at least. And that's going to re, really fill out and arborize uh, your normal MRA sequences to make them look really good. Well, let me ask you a question about that. That brought up something I haven't thought of in a long time. Um, so say for a, for an ABM <clears throat> in the head, <clears throat> like you said, you can run and the phase contrast based techniques today. Uh, and I think every vendor has them. They're not, <clears throat> they're not like the phase contrast techniques we used to use. It would take 15 minutes or so. They're, they're much, much better today. <clears throat> but these phase contrast techniques are one of the big benefits of phase contrast is the fact to, is the ability to, to choose what velocity encoding you want to use. So in a fairly reasonable amount of time, you can get something that's kind of a relatively low velocity encoding, say uh, 15, 20 centimeters per second to get you the venous side of things, and then upwards of 60 centimeters per second or so to get you the arterial side of things. I mean, you can do that in a relatively reasonable period of time, correct? I mean, with today's, you know, modern techniques. Absolutely. You know, in our case, we found it to be a really critical, uh, valuable, efficient sequence in our stroke protocols for kids and adults. We'll get a post-gadolinium 3D phase contrast with a VENC of 40. And what that does, and we open up the SI field of view so that we get down into the neck. So we screen uh, the carotid bifurcations. We see the neck vessels. We don't bill for it. We call it a head MRA, so we don't, you know, gouge. But... It, the other part of that 3D phase contrast is it's not all phase imaging, at least on the GE. If you've scrolled through, you get to these T1 weighted looking images and they are T1 weighted magnitude images yeah. post contrast. So for our stroke protocol, that's what we use for our post contrast images. We just recon them by threes and orthogonal planes. So you get arteries, veins, and uh, T1 weighted post contrast images uh, all in about two minutes, at least for our protocol. Dave, you have any? Do y'all use uh, phase contrast uh, 
sequences uh, much in, in we, your we practice? Use it, we use it some, um, not that much. Usually, um, you know, the our challenge is trying to get the kid, you know, through and off as quickly as we can. And so our, um, our protocols are a little bit more designed to, you know, look for, um, look for diffusion, look for flare, uh, look for, you know, major vessel, um, major vessel flow. And then we're pretty much making the decision from that point. Um, and so we're not relying, uh, as much on, uh, doing a lot of imaging. We, we tend to get, you know, the, again, the problem is how do you get the kids to stay still? Uh, particularly in stroke patients, it's, it's a real challenge, uh, that, you know, patients, uh, both adults and kids are, are moving, uh, fairly frequently. You know, one of the things I'd like to do, I was kind of looking at our, uh, looking at the clock here and we've been, we've been, I think we've covered a lot of good, uh, information here for, for our listeners. And I think we have some, maybe some other stuff to, uh, to discuss. So would you guys be up to, uh, coming back sometime to, uh, maybe do a continuation of this and talk a little bit more about general protocol discussions, uh, as it relates to various, uh, types of, uh, disease entities. What do you think? Absolutely not. Oh, that'd be fun. No way. Oh, wait. I meant what? yes. I meant yes. Sorry. No, 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 no. Gee, what a great well, idea, Bill. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, that's, you know, that's what everybody thinks of my ideas anyway. So, yeah, I think what we're going to do, folks, is we're just going to head and wrap this one up here. I want to thank, uh, thank Howard Raleigh for uh, joining us again, as usual. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Bill. I, I resemble that <laughs> remark. I know you do. And then, of course, Dave Interline. Yay. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much again, Bill. It's been my pleasure. And uh, Howard, always good to talk with you. Likewise. Y'all have a good day. All right. Thank you all very much. Everybody out there, we're done. You're just going to have to get over it. Have a good day, unless you got other plans. Talk to you later. Thank you. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.